Hello and welcome to National League Town, Mets fandom, Mets history, Mets life, with Long Island's own Greg Prince and Jeff Heisen. Hey, Greg. Buenos dias, Jeff. On today's show, we remember Rob Gardner and we talk about our hopes for the offseason. But first, welcome Carlos Mendoza. Last week, I said my reaction to him was shrug emoji. After seeing the press conference, he seems okay. It's great to have our 43rd manager in the last three years. I've lost track. Uh, It was fun to hear Carlos Mendoza speak to us because we had no idea what Carlos Mendoza sounded like. Now we do. And we know, uh, if we didn't already, that he speaks fluent English and fluent Spanish, was able to answer questions to media asking in both languages, And he seems very excited about culture. He is going to have a sideline promoting Dan and yogurt because culture is very important when it comes to (laughs) making yogurt. Uh, We're going to be competitive and fans are going to be passionate. Yeah, whatever, he said. Wisps of air uh, into the atmosphere, quite frankly. I I don't have any uh, great fighting words that I took away from listening to him. Which is not to dismiss anything he said or had to say or what he will do as Mets manager. I think this is sort of a no-win situation. Uh, you come in, you speak positively, and you give gleaming generalities. And he was stock full of those. The real test, as it always is, will not only be putting together a team, earning their trust, one of those things he talked about, and all those 162 games that we hope he lasts several times, but meeting the media beforehand and afterwards, day by day, as well as in spring training and whatever other occasions, all of it is what goes into making a manager, making a good manager, hopefully. And I think he handled himself very well. I do too. I am tired of hearing the word competitive, though. I know that the Mets want to be competitive, but I want them to win the win a World Series. And the Mets keep throwing that competitive work, word out. Maybe that's a word for Pittsburgh or Kansas City this season, but that shouldn't be the word for Mets. The aspiration should be higher than just competing. Ideally, I agree. Coming off an 87-loss season, I am reminded of a phrase I learned from an advertising salesman I worked with at a magazine years ago, under-promise and over-deliver. Because if you do the opposite, you get people saying, oh, remember when he said it's World Series or bust? Oh, my God. Talk about a bust that Carlos Mendoza. Uh, No, that seems to be the party line, both Mendoza and David Stearns. They want to, I believe, keep expectations in check. Uh, not promise more than can be reasonably delivered. I think coming off the year they had before this one, you could have talked about more than being competitive. Here, it's not enough, but it's enough to say it's not going to be a terrible season, which is what competitive means, that we're not giving up, that we're not ruling anything out, but we also understand it's a bit of a leap for us right now. This was setting the table, both Stearns and Mendoza, bringing them in, was setting the table. Uh, What's going to be on that table is what the rest of November and December, and really up until they report to Port St. Lucie, 
what all that time is for. Well, was it Robert Kraft and Bill Parcells, uh, one of them talking about buying the groceries and getting to cook years ago? Uh, yeah, Set, setting the table there. Nobody set the table like Lenny Dykstra and Wally Backman, and we will hope <laughs> Carlos Mendoza and David Stearns can serve it up, yogurt notwithstanding. Do you have are there enough metaphors there, and are you a little hungry now? Hungry for baseball. I keep hearing that Carlos Mendoza is detail-oriented. What's the opposite of detail-oriented? How would that manifest itself? Why, why would you hire a manager who isn't interested in the intricacies of the game? I mean, I guess it, it implies that, oh, he's going to leave no stone unturned. He's going to pay attention to every player, every aspect. I mean, we just had a guy who I thought was detail-oriented. That was one of those things uh, we were in love with the first year of Buck Showalter, how, you know, that that steel trap for rules and drilling it into his players and getting a pitcher to put on an appeal play and then getting something out of that, those sorts of things. In Mendoza's case, I imagine it means, you know, being aware of everything. Uh, I think that's all managers, though, now. I don't think you get hired without being detail-oriented. We were talking about one detail earlier. We weren't sure that we wanted to discuss it. Um, I'm going to bring it up anyway. They had a press conference in which the manager speaks two languages and answered questions in both languages. I think we agree it would have been nice had this detail been thought of by somebody, if not Carlos Mendoza, then perhaps David Stearns, somebody else. Maybe they should have translated all of his answers for, for both audiences. It felt like he was running two press conferences, and I kind of wanted to know what he was saying in each one of his answers. And maybe I should have been a better student when I took Spanish in junior high and high school, but uh, I was a little left behind there. Yeah, I wasn't great in Spanish in high school either, but I so I didn't understand much of what he was saying. And again, it would would, would have been nice if someone prompted him to say. Can you give us a summary of what you told that reporter? Because there certainly seemed to be a plethora of Spanish-speaking media there, which is great, all for it. But I hope there's plenty of Japanese media if they sign Yamamoto. But a translator seemed like it would have been appropriate. You're playing across, roughly across the 59th Street Bridge from the UN. Lots of translators uh, could have had the... Uh... Could have all met press conferences there from now on. So everybody has one of those little headsets and they're getting simultaneous translation. Again, it's a small thing. And I just, I wonder, I don't know how much Spanish David Stearns understands. And I was wondering if he was thinking, <laughs> what is this guy talking about exactly? And again, he was very animated and enthusiastic. And I, th that is also great. I'm happy uh, the, the, the answers that uh, Carlos Mendoza was giving didn't seem to bring him down like, like Moy Mal, very bad. But uh, no, he's he's excited. And uh, listen, as long as he uh, can talk to anybody who's going to ask him a question, whatever language, and as long as we find out eventually what's going on, uh, we will mostly be interested in translating the win column and the loss column. And I think he knows that. I think Stearns knows that. But that would have been a nice detail to have taken care of. Without putting all of that on a man who's seeing his dream come true one day, all these years he's wanted to be a major league manager. It's probably a bit much for him to also ask him to take care of all communications needs, but something to think about when, he, when he's giving hopefully his world series, accepting the key to the city speech on the steps of city hall, 
And if he wants to uh, reach every audience possible, I hope uh, somebody will take care of that. Are we getting ahead of ourselves? A tiny little bit. But like you said, we're hungry for baseball, hungry for more than competitive baseball. Then again, the baseball wasn't that competitive last year. So maybe we should take a small step and a small bite. I remember a situation last year when the when the Mets, specifically Buck, did not call attention to detail, and I hope that that's corrected this season. It was late in the year. The Mets had a doubleheader. Kodai Senga was pitching the second game, and when the second game was beginning, we heard that Senga had to rush his preparation because he takes a long time to prepare, and he takes longer than it took between games. And I wrote to you. I said, why didn't somebody think of this? Why didn't Buck think of this? Why didn't Hefner think of this? To have him start preparing before the first game was over. Hopefully, Carlos Mendoza will think of that this season. Yeah, I was actually at that press conference where Show Walter said that. And it's like, this was, like you said, the last week of the season. And maybe he hadn't pitched in a doubleheader at that point. I'm, I'm surprised it didn't come up in Buck's. I mean, in the moment, and this is perhaps uh, what many of us who listen to Buck were prone to, just kind of being awed by his his folksiness. And because Buck was sort of like, did you know that? I didn't know that. I didn't know that's how they didn't play doubleheaders in Japan. I didn't know that. Like, well, maybe somebody by the end of September should have clued somebody in that this was an issue. Uh, that, that turned out to be the night uh, he got his 200th strikeout, uh, Senga. So I and the Met bullpen later made sure it wouldn't be a win. I guess it didn't hurt him overall. I, if this guy, Mendoza, is uh, Mr. Preparation slash Senior Preparacion, uh, we will look forward to that sort of thing being thought about, being covered. But then again, you know what? It's kind of interesting. Um, if I can fall back into to buck mode just ever so slightly, you learn something new every day, every week, every year, and there'll probably be things that come up that even if somebody is saying, okay, we got to remember, Senga needs to warm up in the bullpen if he's pitching the second game of a doubleheader. Something else that nobody has thought of will probably come up. But hey, detail orientation. Think about that. And one thing I thought of when watching the press conference, who are these guys? We just had other guys there. Who are these guys? But yes, you've talked about continuity. Assuming Mendoza's there for two years, he'll match Buck. But who's Stearns? We just had Epler. (laughs) Epler just got there. It would be nice to see the same faces for a while and not have these press conferences where somebody puts on a jersey, at least the manager, and it takes a little too long and he makes a a crack about how long it takes to put it on a jersey. I don't need to see any more managers doing that for a while. Yeah, and we're probably never going to see that jersey again except for the team picture because managers, and not not just Buck Shoulder, don't seem to wear their jerseys in games anymore. So I, I guarantee you by the middle of the season, uh, unless he's a, a throwback, uh, we're going to be asked, somebody's going to be asking, what was Mendoza's number again? <laughs> because you're never going to see it. And I, th- I think there was an article, I want to say in The Athletic, it might have been Uni Watch, about the idea of just saying goodbye to managers and coaches getting jerseys because it would free up numbers. Again, we're, we're, we're going off on a bit of a tangent there. Yeah, I had that same reaction, staring at guy who's sort of familiar after a month. And a guy who's not really at all familiar, except since the other day. I'm like, oh, these are the guys in whose hands our fate as fans now rests to a great degree. And it's sort of jarring. Well, what was it in um, in Boogie Nights where, was it the Colonel or somebody else? Somebody who was helping to fund Burt Reynolds' movies 
he walks in with like like uh, two two boys, two girls who you've never seen before. He says these are these are the new people. <laughs> like these are the people that people want to see. Like they are. I've never heard of them before. <laughs> That's quite frankly David Stearns to a great degree, uh, and Carlos Mendoza to a great degree. And I know that they've been endorsed, spoken for, blessed by everybody. You can't turn around without reading an article of people telling you how great each of them is. And we should be so lucky to bear the fruits of that. But yeah, it's it's a bit of a rerun or reboot, really. Uh, they've had this plot before, but they're rebooting it for Netflix or whoever. And they've got new people in the roles. May they be very good at it. And may we like never see them sitting on a podium again. And then this is the season. This is you know November. It gets less exciting. Let's put it that way. I remember uh, they, one of the questions Mendoza was asked, like, you know, in so many words, who are some of your influences? Who, which I thought was a pretty decent question. Uh, managers who you look up to. And one of the names he mentioned was Willie Randolph, ex-Mets manager. It's like, I don't know if, if you felt this way 20, 19 years ago now. I guess it was yeah, the fall of 2004. Hey, it's Willie Randolph. He's now the manager of the Mets. I, I've heard of him. He's familiar to me. This is the dawning of a new era. Granted, we had just gone through the dawning of a new era with our Al. I wasn't too excited about that. So, wow, this is great. Or And then he mentioned, him, or somebody asked him specifically about Luis Rojas, which was a relevant question because they were both on the same Yankee coaching staff. And I'm like, oh, yeah, Luis Rojas. He was here, like, he was just doing this a few years ago. And we, we, we've cycled through these names uh, in recent episodes. The, these things used to have that sense of, you know, what white smoke coming out of the Vatican. And my God, we have we have a new manager. We have a new general manager. And now, you know, when it happens every six weeks or so, it's not as exciting. So for, forgive us if we are not overwhelmed by anything either one of these guys said either today or when Stearns came in. I think I think you'd agree with me. We're both happy to have them. We wish them well because we have a vested interest as, fa- in, as fans or you know, a vested emotional interest certainly as fans. And thank, thank you for your time answering questions. And now do, you know, what was it uh, Mendoza said? Uh, he, he sort of sounded like uh, in Step Brothers. He said, like, I'm going to interview you. <laughs> no, he said, I interviewed them. <laughs> they interviewed me. Well, now you've all interviewed each other. Go go do those things that you were interviewed about and interviewing. And and we will uh, we'll be all for you, number 28. Or really number 25, because he's the 25th manager in Mets history. But number 28 on your scorecard. Well, as they said in Step Brothers, I hope we become best friends with Carlos Mendoza, and I hope that he's the last person to ever wear 28 because he wins so many world championships that he's enshrined in the Mets Hall of Fame and they retire his number. When you saw that he donned 28, who was the first Mets player you thought of? The first player who occurred to me was John Milner. Same. And then Daniel Murphy and Bobby Jones in a tie for second. Well, National League Town remains the only Mets podcast to reference Boogie Nights and Step Brothers. But now we turn to the offseason. I have two questions for Greg about the offseason. The first one is a general one. Without getting into players, what are your hopes and dreams for the Mets offseason? As a fan, I'm just worn out from the 2023 season. Maybe it's because we did that 27-part series. (laughs) <laughs> um, let's let's all remember the 2023 Mets and their season. And as you know, I only like to do that every 10 years, but we did it uh, for about a month. But that's okay. It's what we do. 
you're asking me now, so I will give it a quick thought. It's hard to say stay the course for an 87-win team because there, there are places around the margins I would like them to address. But I, I am taken by the idea, and I don't think I'm the first person to come up with this. I know I'm not because a friend of mine said it to me. This idea that you know we have four core veterans in the starting lineup who we saw play almost the entire season, their ups and downs, and the four youngsters who did not play the whole season. Some played more than others. Some gave us a reason to feel excited. I'd love to see those eight players somehow find a way to gel and blend together and work around the margins of those guys with the understanding that maybe somebody is left out, somebody gets moved or whatever. So with that in mind, the players who aren't those guys, and then for anybody who, who uh, thinks I'm uh, being coquettish here, you know, McNeil, Nimmo, Lindor, Alonzo on the veteran side, Vientos, Beatty, Alvarez, and Mauricio on the youngster side. What does that leave aside? Well, it leaves a DH aside. I think we know who neither one of us wants to see back there again. So <laughs> that that's one area I would like to see addressed. Versatility is an interesting thing because we you know, one of our core veterans is a guy who moves between the infield and the outfield. I wonder to what extent that affects his offense, talking about McNeil. We don't know what to make of Starling Marte, so I think outfield depth which is where it felt like they were hurting last year, comes in, and all pitching, which is a strange thing to say about the Mets because the Mets are a pitching-oriented organization by tradition. Other than one guy you feel really good of, uh, National League Rookie of the Year runner-up, Kodai Senga, uh, then one guy you feel okay about, uh, Jose Quintana, you don't know what the hell to think. And the bullpen, you don't know what the hell to think. Edwin Diaz's recovery, notwithstanding. Brooks Raley's option being picked up, notwithstanding. So, hey, you know, you say nobody else talked about Boogie Nights. Well, what did they talk about in Boogie Nights? How long certain things were. My answers <laughs> are also that long. Uh, nobody wants to see them. So there's a lot to do, and I haven't really thought about it. That's what they have David Stearns for. And the, the staff that is going to back up David Stearns and this great new manager who's detail-oriented. So bring it on, fellas. I'd like to see a competent offseason without anybody throwing out that tired trope, LOL Mets. I'm sick of it. You're sick of it. Half the time it's inappropriate. The other time it's just tired and old hat. I just like to see a well-run, competent offseason without anybody having to go LOL Mets. And I have brought over for Jeff to enjoy an old hat because he says he doesn't want to see old hat. It's an old California Angels hat. Bought it at Yankees Stadium in 1986 because the Yankees were playing the Angels and they would sell you one. So I'm going to toss the old hat aside ceremonially. Do you have any specific players in mind that you want to see the Mets get? You can't say Otani. I'm going to say, I might say the same thing I would have said last year, showing how little attention I've been playing. What's, what's the, the guy from Japan? What is that? Y- Yamamoto. Okay, him. I hear good things that he might be interested. So that's nice. But no, I'm not really sitting here with a list of players. And maybe I just don't do that as much as I used to. But I have, it's, it isn't one of those off seasons where I'm, I'm, my mouth is watering over free agents, any specific fellows, or getting excited about uh, trade proposals. Do the right thing going into 22. Uh, and I, I feel very uh, proprietary almost 
of, of this series of transactions because it, it seems like it's, it's our flagship series of transactions because when we started doing this, it had just happened. That Friday afternoon when they signed Marte and Canna and Escobar, I wasn't, maybe Marte, his name had been out there. I don't think Escobar's was for the Mets. I don't think Canna's was at all. And they just landed and they all did a great job that year. Forget about 2023 for a second. And, you know, and Scherzer was the Monday after. I always feel compelled to add. It's okay. Surprise me. I, I don't really have a wish list. I just wish in, in tune with what you said about have a competent offseason. I, I guess I hope that they can do more than just plug holes. When I, I think about plugging holes, the 2020 before COVID offseason, when we were blessed with Michael Walker and Rick Porcello, with the idea that, you know what, these guys, maybe they'll eat some innings. And it didn't really work out in New York for either one of them. And it kind of felt like, are we giving up already without trying to reconstruct what that whole roster looked like? Don't go out and limit yourself to those guys and nothing personal against either one of them. Porcello grew up a Mets fan, had very nice things to say about Mets fans the year he didn't pitch in front of them, but, but wished he could have brought them better luck and walk has gone on and revived his career. But the, you know what I mean? The, those sorts of middling pitchers. And, and no, that, that it's not helpful for me to just say, don't get good. Don't get so-so guys, get good guys. But honestly, um, it's, it's hard to get excited about the names that are just out there. But I'm not detail-oriented, obviously, on this. We need detail-oriented management, and we have it because we've been told that they are. I love to see uh, Yamamoto, but so uh, to the fans of every other team, every other team was scouting him when he pitched a no-hitter. He just won the Japanese version of the Cy Young for the third straight year. He just won the gold glove there. Everybody wants him. He can go wherever he wants, but that's the number one player I'm looking at outside of Otani, in addition to a power bat behind Pete. How many years have I been saying that, Greg? Two. We're almost done with two years of the show. I've been saying that for two years. Pete's been exposed in the lineup because he, he's had Daniel Vogel back behind him. He needs to have somebody to protect him in the lineup. Juan Soto would be perfect. Now you can say, well, I don't think we should get Juan Soto because he's going to be a free agent next year. Why should we spend top minor leaguers on a free agent to be? Except that all it takes is one team, say the Yankees, to say, no, we're going to go for him now and we hope to sign him during the season. So you'll have to spend now if you want Juan Soto. I think he'd be a perfect fit for the Mets. Yeah, if you can make that come together and not have it destroy your the depth you're trying to build. Uh, listen, Soto is what, 26? To get in a year ahead of uh, what, what would be the stampede like that winter that Harper and Machado were free agents. They were young free agents, which is a lot different from getting a guy when he's 32. Uh, not not that I'm not haunted by the idea of turning around and saying, oh, my God, uh, look what happened to Juan Soto after the Mets got him. But you kind of got to get past that as a fan sometimes. It's something that they, uh, to, to speak in gleaming general, generalities, it's something they should look into, absolutely, if he is available. You know, I think back 20 years ago, this offseason, Vladimir Guerrero was a free agent for the first time. There was like a wide open field. I don't remember exactly why they were concerned about his bad back or 
Uh, maybe it was like collusion junior or something was going on. And like, it looked like for about six hours on a Saturday that we were going to get Vladimir Guerrero. And, and I loved Vladimir Guerrero, one of my favorite non-Mets ever. And I still paused because I was thinking, I don't, something tells me this isn't going to work out. Something like we'll go from being like a lousy non-competitive team that we were in 2003 and that will be a lousy non-competitive team, but we'll have Vladimir Guerrero, um, which may have just been where my mind was as a Mets fan back then. And as it turned out, the Mets gave him a little ball off when he went to the Angels and he wears an Angels cap, not the same one I was showing you 10 minutes ago in uh, the Hall of Fame. Make a reasonable run at everybody. Do your due diligence to use one of those uh, th- those postmodern baseball words. It's existed in business forever, but guys like Stearns and Mendoza love to use phrases like that. So um, I'm open to anybody. I'm open to anything. I'm open to thinking that Francisco Alvarez is at least part of that solution as a power bat, internal and becoming more consistent. And we do have a, a 30-30 man, although he's batting ahead of Alonzo most nights in Lindor. We, we shouldn't feel so completely power bereft, but I know what you mean. Uh, it does feel like there, there needs to be something else there in that lineup. And, you know, we got guys who can hit 20 home runs like Nimmo, as he showed us. But, yeah, there needs to be a little something more. And I would imagine that's a priority. And Juan Soto is 25 at the moment. Greg was thinking ahead to May when he turns 26. Uh, So so we look forward to finding out who the Mets sign this offseason. Hopefully it's a prosperous one, not just for the players, but for the fans spiritually. And we look forward to talking about it with you on National League Town. Jeff, like you said, it's been a long offseason which makes me think about long games, which we don't get as much anymore because of the uh, runner on second rule, which did not exist until fairly recently. Uh, We were also talking about number 28, uh, who we think about when we think about number 28, other than Carlos Mendoza, who is top of mind uh, heading into 2024. And and one of the players I mentioned to you was Bobby Jones. Um, I think Bobby Jones was top of mind for me a little bit because of the subject of not just long games, but long games that starting pitchers stay in past the ninth inning. And there have been approximately 75 of those in Mets history, but not since Bobby Jones in 1994 have we seen a starting pitcher throw a 10th inning. Uh, It was something that was not exactly common, but you'd see a a few Mets a year take games into extra innings and – you know, bullpens weren't relied on the way they are now. And it became a little less common in the 70s and almost unheard of as the 80s moved on. And then it expired in the 90s, certainly in, in the Mets uh, world. And I bring all this up because I'm thinking about the guy who threw the most amazing game in Mets history. Maybe not the best game because there are a lot of ways to look at that. I'm thinking about the guy who threw a 15-inning shutout. Not a complete game shutout, because the Mets did not take care of him offensively. I'm thinking about Rob Gardner, uh, somebody whose name came up on this show uh, toward the end of the season. We were talking about tie games. We weren't sure about that game that uh, got rained on in extra innings against the Marlins. They didn't know what to do with it in the ninth inning. 
We thought they were, you know, they suspended it. We didn't know if they were going to make it up, call it a tie. Anyway, well, we did talk about Rob Gardner a little bit, but it seems appropriate to talk about him a little more because Rob Gardner passed away shortly after the season ended. And I just wanted to circle back to what I would like everybody to think of as the Rob Gardner game. And I don't think there's any doubt that it is in Mets history, the Rob Gardner game. Of course, there's been a lot of Mets history. A lot of games are played in 62 seasons and it's reasonable that not all of them would be remembered, but Rob Gardner pitched a game that fallen through the cracks of Mets history and really deserves to kind of bounce back up above the surface. And he pitched 15 innings of shutout ball on the last Saturday night of the season. And it feels like very few people know it ever happened. And I might throw in the fact that in 1965, when it happened, very few people probably knew it happened. Uh, it was an absolutely unusual set of circumstances. First off, it's it's a twi-night doubleheader. The second game on the last Saturday night, like I said, it was supposed to be a day game, single day game, rain on Friday night. They're playing the Phillies, neither team. It's 1965. Obviously, the Mets are an independent race, and the Phillies aren't either. They had collapsed the year before. So they're playing a doubleheader, a twi-nighter, as opposed to a day game. So maybe not that many people there to begin with, and the attendance wasn't great. First game goes by, Mets are shut out by Jim Bunning. Mets fans should recognize that name, not only because he's in the Hall of Fame and he was a senator in the United States. And I don't mean playing for Washington, but he threw a perfect game the year before against the Mets at Shea Stadium. Okay, game two, Rob Gardner's pitching for the Mets. Chris Short, excellent pitcher, left both lefties uh, for the Phillies. And they just throw goose egg after goose egg, to use a baseball term you don't hear too much anymore. And they get through three innings, six innings, nine innings. It's a nothing-nothing shutout. There's nothing to save them for. They stay in the game. 10, 11, 12, 13. Neither team has scored. Chris Short is striking out 18 Mets, which at the time ties a record. Rob Gardner is not striking out as many Phillies, but he's not allowing any runs. They both go for it. 15 innings of shutout ball. Only one Met had ever pitched 15 innings in a game before. Al Jackson, or as Bob Murphy would call him, Little Al Jackson from Waco, Texas, the stylish left-hander from Waco, Texas. But he gave up a few runs and ended up losing in the game because it was 1962, and that's what happened to the Mets. Here, uh, the managers, in our case, Wes Westrom, in their case, Gene Mock, uh, let their pitchers go as long as they could. Neither guy gave up a run. They went to the bullpen, a couple of relievers on both sides. 18 innings, what happens? We're calling a curfew. When was the last time you heard about a curfew in Major League Baseball? And this is what gets me about the Rob Gardner game. Not that he got a no decision and deserved better. Not that he deserved kudos for this. And yet it, it kind of landed like an asterisk in its time or a footnote. Um, game never ended. It was called a nothing-nothing tie after 18 innings. And I did a lot of research into this game, both before and after uh, the passing of Rob Gardner, uh, but especially after. And I have a hard time getting a straight answer about why there was no more baseball that night. If there was a National League curfew, no, the National League didn't have a curfew anymore. Well, it was a New York City curfew. No, it wasn't a New York City curfew. It was a New York State curfew. No, it was Sunday Blue Laws. No, that wasn't it. Uh, you know, the, the, the unions, they, they put a put a kibosh, anything, anything starting after 1 a.m. No, that wasn't it. It was this. 
So it's it's clouded in mystery. And you would think, well, you know, the papers the next day, even you know, the late edition, certainly Monday's papers, would have something about this. Well, guess what? The New York papers were on strike at that very moment. So you don't have, and I rely to a great deal on something called newspapers.com, which has archives of papers like Newsday and the Daily News. Nothing. They weren't there. They weren't publishing. Times, nothing. Weren't there. Wasn't publishing. And by the time Monday rolls around, mind you, late Saturday night, they call the game, which is, you know, again, ties were not unusual if it was raining or whatever. Um, they just decide to make up the whole thing the next day. In other words, an extra doubleheader, because that is a league rule, and they wouldn't let them off the hook. Somebody apparently called the league office and said, do we really have to play two more games? And yeah, then the Mets lost two more games, I think finally scored a run. Uh, it was like 49 innings and three runs, something like that. So the Mets ended up losing three games. But, but back to the idea that nobody knew about this, uh, there's basically no coverage of it. In the Philadelphia papers, they give it, like, oh, by the way, Chris Short threw 15 shutout innings and struck out 18 Mets. And the sporting news picked up on the idea that this was a record-setting thing, but it was like in a little box the next week. And they don't even mention Rob Gardner's name. And I'm thinking that, you know, as the years go by, and mind you, I, despite what Barry Manilow said and I write the songs, you know, I, it only seems like I've been alive forever and I saw the very first game. I, I didn't. I relied a lot as a kid on learning from Bob and Ralph and Lindsay uh, what I'd missed. And they tell great stories. They talked about little Al Jackson, all those guys. I don't ever remember them talking about Rob Gardner or the Rob Gardner game or that night in 1965. And I'm not sure. I don't even think Lindsay Nelson was there because he was doing Notre Dame games on Saturday football. And Ralph and Bob may not have been reminded of this game enough by their pals in the press room because they weren't there those, those nights because they were on strike. So I just think of this weird confluence of events that that served to obscure is the most incredible on paper met pitching performance of all time. And you know, we talk about certain pitchers throwing incredibly memorable games. We talk, I'm talking about Bobby Jones, the one hitter to clinch a playoff series in 2000, Al Leiter's two hitter to clinch a playoff spot in 1999, you know, any number of Tom Seaver games, the imperfect game, the 19 strikeouts with 10 in a row game. We might talk about Jerry Kuzman answering the Cubs with, you know, brushing back Randy Hunley and all the incredible postseason games he had. We, we could talk about Doc all day. We could talk about David Cohn, talk about Jacob deGrom, you know, R.A. Dickey, Matt Harvey. Um, we never hear about Rob Gardner, who granted is not in that realm for a career, but that's one incredible game. It's not a no-hitter, it's not no-han, but it ain't nothing. Uh, he comes back the next year. He's he's young, by the way. I haven't mentioned that. He was a rookie when he's doing this. Uh, first full year is going to be 1966. He throws a couple of complete game wins, but it doesn't really work out for him, uh, nor does Wes Westrom really work out as manager, and maybe he didn't handle him perfectly, and he's kind of up and down minor leagues, and eventually traded and eventually kind of finds his way back to the major leagues in the early 70s with both the A's and the Yankees, which is where I became aware of Rob Gardner. I had no idea who he was from a Mets standpoint until I flipped over his 1972 baseball card and saw New York NL and was thinking, huh, I didn't know who this guy was. That would happen now and then. You'd see some guy from 1966 show up on a card in 1972, and you'd try to educate yourself a little bit. And then 
one day, Rob Gardner, uh, who again had made himself into a pretty good relief pitcher and spot starter, uh, just kind of faded from the scene as far as everybody was concerned. And that was basically it for hearing about Rob Gardner as a major leaguer until 2020 in the pandemic. Uh, a writer who you may recognize from her appearances on the MLB Network, Hannah Kaiser, uh, got curious, got in touch after reading an article about like best pitching performances by franchise. And somebody had looked at game score. Game score is a stat that Bill James devised to show how dominant a pitcher is in any given game. And it's about how many innings and how many of them were shut out and strikeouts and so on and so forth. And he's like, hey, this Rob Gardner guy. So she gave him a call. Well, he'd been living in Binghamton all these years. Uh, maybe not the most famous person to come out of Binghamton, but that is where he came from. And he had retired up there from baseball and became a paramedic for the fire department. And he didn't remember all the details of the game. He wasn't even sure it, it didn't finish. Uh, he was kind of disappointed to be reminded of that or to learn it anew 55 years later. Uh I'd urge anybody to, it was written for Yahoo Sports. I'd urge anybody to go do a search for Hannah Kaiser, Rob Gardner, Yahoo Sports. It's a good story. Ron Swoboda is featured prominently in it. She looked him up and he talked about being thrown out of the game for arguing uh, balls and strikes as a batter. Figured, well, I, I'm not, this is the second game of a doubleheader. I'm going to go meet my parents who are in town. We're going to go out for dinner uh, at a place called Lums, which was a famous Chinese restaurant in Flushing. He comes out much later that night, sees the lights of the stadium are still on, says, I probably shouldn't have left. <laughs> I probably wasn't supposed to go home and go to dinner. Anyway, uh, like I said, Rob Gardner had been living out his life as a firefighter for many years. 9-11 uh, unfortunately happened, and like firefighters and paramedics and people from everywhere, he came down with his colleagues uh, to see what could be done at 9-11, uh, excuse me, at ground zero after 9-11, the uh, tragic aftermath. And he's there helping dig things out for a day or more. Uh, you know, he didn't make a big deal of it. It just came up in, in the story. And it, it got me thinking about how, you know, how proud we were of the 2001 Nets for giving themselves over to the rescue workers. And even when there was no more rescuing to be done, sadly, and going down to ground zero, visiting firehouses. And they still do that every year in there, uh, you know, carry, carry the banner high. And I'm thinking like there was an actual New York Met in the middle of all of that, not there as a celebrity, but as one of, if not a first responder, a responder. And, you know, just kind of blows my mind to realize that, that people working with Rob Gardner, people who were meeting him for the first time in those circumstances, had no idea who this guy was. And they, even if you told them his name, they probably wouldn't have known because even then it was what, uh, 36 years later. So, you know, he lived his life, uh, said in this article that uh, maybe what he did as a firefighter was, and a paramedic may have been more important than being a Met and, and maybe getting a couple of more decisions, including one that he absolutely deserved. I mean, my God. 15 shutout innings and a no decision and the whole game had a no decision everybody who showed up that night about 10,000 went home and I guess they could say well I saw something you're not going to believe uh, I saw a game last 18 innings and nobody won sounds like a riddle doesn't it so you know again we uh, we talk about unfortunately too many of these guys from that period in Mets history who pass on 
And it's it's kind of odd to talk about the mark this fellow left was a mark that's that's hard to discern for the average fan and hasn't necessarily been kept even close to top of mind as one of those anecdotes you hear now and then. So uh, the man's name was Rob Gardner. The man pitched 15 shutout innings on the second to last night of the season. Uh, next time a game goes into 10 innings, and if the pitcher happened to have lasted that long, if you hear about such a thing, if you're wondering if somebody will actually go nine innings, uh, think about Rob Gardner next year and say, my God, wasn't that amazing? Beautiful words, Greg. Rest in peace, Rob Gardner. Our condolences to his friends and family. Before we go, a National League town first, at least as far as we know, as one of our listeners has been nominated for a Grammy Award. Congratulations to Liz Calloway on her Grammy nomination in the category of Best Traditional Pop Vocal Album for her album to Steve with Love. And there it is. Greg's holding it up. For those of you watching on the 24-hour live stream airing exclusively on Paramount+, Plus. Greg's holding up the CD to Steve with Love, though. Some of you may think it's about Steve Cohn. Maybe if the Mets win a World Series, Liz will record an album of love songs for Steve Cohn. But this is songs written by the great Stephen Sondheim. So congratulations to National League Town listener and Grammy nominee, Liz Calloway. Yeah, the, the first edition of To Steve With Love, uh, Ode to Steve Phillips, was pulled back by the studio <laughs> uh, when Rick Reed was traded to Minnesota because no love for Steve for that. But yeah, very happy for Liz. And uh, it's a terrific album. Happy to, to have it. First off, as, as I think we've said before, her national anthems should be nominated for awards. But uh, I hope she wins the Grammy. And uh, we wish all our listeners uh, the recognition they deserve. And not just for listening to National League Town. And we thank you for listening to this episode of National League Town. So until next time, I'm Jeff Heisen. Buenas noches. I'm Greg Prince. And as always, Let's go Mets. Copyright 2023 music provided by the Royal Arctic Institute. Check them out on Bandcamp.